So maybe uh, one, of the, one of the strangest, one of my strangest experiences for me in seminary, at least in the classroom anyways, there were some strange outside of the classroom experiences for sure, but in the classroom anyways, one of the stranger experiences was uh, at least a certain class, one specific class, there was a, a the stream of, uh, of theology that they were teaching us were these, were these brilliant and godly men were making these very biblically sounding arguments why it was that the church essentially had no business, really no authority to be of service to the poor, to be of service to any poor or anyone outside of the church itself. Uh, and this was taught, this, the, the, the name for this is called the spirituality of the church. It's been around for a while, the idea of it. And the big idea is that really the mission of the church is to preach the gospel, to administer the sacraments, uh, and to disciple God's people. And that's it. But if we do those things, then that will create, uh, you know, that's, that's what we're responsible to do, and that should then create change in the world. Um, and so all the, the, big, the big part, really one of the big cornerstones of that argument, uh, which sounded so strange to me because it just seems so obvious that the church, you know, all, there seems so many passages where Jesus talks about, you know, the poor and caring for the poor, and that that was a central responsibility in, in, for the church and for Christians. Uh, and, but the bigger part of the argument was really this, that all, all the passages that speak about caring for the poor are all in the context of caring for the poor who are already believers in the church. And there's a ring of truth to that because there's tons of verses that speak about that. For example, a big one that's usually brought up is Jesus in the famous, uh, you know, his famous parable of the sheep and the goats where Jesus says to his followers that whatever you did for the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you did it to me, meaning He's talking all those acts of justice and all those acts of righteousness, feeding the poor, clothing the naked, uh, caring for the blind, all those things uh, were really that they did for the brothers and sisters, meaning members of the church, they did to Jesus, but it doesn't really speak about anyone outside the church. And so there's a ring of truth to it. There's a lot of passages that speak like that. And even, you know, Paul says that we should, you know, Care for, uh, care for all men, especially believers, especially those in the church. There is a sense where there is a certain priority where we as, a, as God's people are supposed to care for the people in our own church. It's a big foundational part of what the diaconate or our deacons are supposed to do. Um, but not all of them say that. Not all of them are limited to that. And maybe, maybe uh, you know, this passage of the Good Samaritan that we've just read, it might be one of the most, it, you know, it is literally, could be one of the most central and foundational teaching of Jesus on doing justice in the New Testament. At least it's in the top, you know, top five or so. And in it, Jesus literally blows the doors off of all the comfortable parameters of justice that first century Jewish culture had developed over time. And maybe, just maybe in, in the story that we just read, uh, as, we look at, as we look through it and bring it out, maybe Jesus will blow some of the doors off of our comfortable cultural limitations that we've grown into over time.
At least that's my hope. In the story we just read, the lawyer, he asked a super important question, and that's the question we're going to focus on today. He asks, uh, you know, the law essentially can be summarized into two big summaries. All the law can be summarized into two big ideas, that we are to love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and two, to love our neighbor as ourself. And if that's true, and it is, and it's really important to understand, then who is my neighbor? And that's the question that this lawyer asked. Is it just brothers and sisters in the Lord? Is it my next door neighbor? Is it everybody? Who is it? That's an important question for us to understand if we're going to get to what Jesus is calling us to in uh, at least as how we as the New Testament church are to carry out these ideas of doing justice and being righteous in the world. Uh, And so this whole, really this whole parable focuses on answering that one question because there was so much confusion about it at the time, and maybe there's a lot of confusion about it for us today. So let's do that. First big question we're going to ask is, who is my neighbor? I can't play chess to save my life, but I'm super fascinated by the game and reading about the great chess masters because particularly, uh, uh, because of how they play the game, how they strategize, and how they're able to think ahead 10 or 12 steps uh, to entrap their opponent into the checkmate, right? That's just so fascinating to me that someone could think, you know, so far ahead or so many moves ahead. It's like those crazy kids with the Rubik's Cubes. Have you ever seen that Rubik's Cubes contest where the kid looks at the cube and then he blindfolds him and then they start the clock and he solves the puzzle, right? He got, he's got to think like, 80, 90 moves ahead and memorize it in his brain to get to the desired outcome, right? That's astonishing. Boxing's a little bit like that, too. So I can get it a little bit. Your first two or three punches are really just to set up for the big fourth, third or fourth punch, right? But the reason that fascinates me and the reason why, one of the big reasons why I love the Gospels and I love these stories of Jesus is because Jesus playing theological chess with these people. He is just handling them. He's just like walking them like right down the path. And then when they walk right into the trap, he goes, pow, he just hands it to them on a platter, right? Love that about these stories of Jesus, just the, 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 just the brilliance of it. And this, in my, in my mind, is one of his most subtle and one of the best Pharisee smackdowns in all of the New Testament, in all of the Gospels. So here's what's happening. The lawyer is not genuine. He is trying to set Jesus up. It says that. He puts, he's trying to put Jesus to the test. He's not asking honest questions. How do we know that? He's, you know, he gets up to put Jesus to the test. And he's trying, what he's trying to do is get Jesus to contradict their understanding of the Mosaic law. He's trying to outwit Jesus, right? Bad idea. Bad idea. And so his first question is, Essentially, how is a person saved? And we can relate with that, right? That's our first question. That is like the premier, most important question. And there's a lot of truth to that. That is the most important question in theology, in religion. How is a person saved from the condition of sin? How is a person enter into heaven? 
And so that's his first question, right? He's asking that question first, hoping to catch Jesus off guard. Jesus answers him. He's like, hey, you're a lawyer. You can read the text. What do you say? And he answers with those two summaries. You love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus is like, yeah, if you can do that, you'll be saved. And then the second question, second question the lawyer asks, and this is where it gets really disingenuous. The second question is, okay then, who is my neighbor? Which is just an amazing question to begin with because he's just assuming right away off the bat that he's loved the Lord his God with all his heart, mind, soul, and strength. That's not even on the table, right? Check. Okay, who's my neighbor? But it's disingenuous because he already knows. The lawyer already knows who his neighbor is. The Talmud, which is the Jewish commentary on the Old Testament and the law, told him specifically, not sinners, not Gentiles, not outsiders, not enemies, pretty much other faithful, believing Jews, that's it. So he already knows the answer to this question. It's not genuine. And so here's the brilliance of Jesus. We're not going to go through the whole thing. We went through a lot of this, like I said, a little over a year ago. But the main point of the story, what Jesus is trying to show him, the central point is this. And here's the brilliance of Jesus. If Jesus had made this story about... uh, If Jesus had made this story about a good Jew who helped out a Samaritan, which maybe you would think, right? He'd want to, you know, like build up the Jew or encourage him saying, look, you guys are good guys. You would do this, right? I mean, that's how we would think anyways. But if Jesus had made the story about a good Jew who helped a Samaritan who had been beaten almost to death, the Pharisees would have died laughing. They would have thought that was utter ridiculousness. And so what Jesus did instead was he put the Jew, the one they could relate to, in the hot seat. And he says to them, if this was you, if you were the guy who was beaten within an inch of his life and left for dead, he doesn't even ask him the question of like, what would you want your neighbor to do? He takes it a step beyond that and he says, who would you want to be your neighbor? Man, which is really the essence of that. It's the, it's the essence of and really what that whole summary of that law is trying to get at. What, how do you determine what love is? Is You determine what love is by what would you want done for yourself? Not just what would you want done, but in that specific situation, who would you want to be your neighbor? Would you want the Samaritan to be your neighbor? And it just, it, you know, checkmate, right? They don't tell us what happened after that. But the lawyer didn't have anything else to say. Because the answer is obvious. The answer is obvious. I would want the Samaritan to be my neighbor. I would want my enemy to be my neighbor. Uh, I would want the person who I hated and despised and looked down on to be my neighbor. 
And if you'd want your enemy to be your neighbor, well, the implication's obvious, and that's what Jesus is really getting at. It means, first, Jesus is saying that everyone that we come in contact with whom we have the power to help, that's our neighbor. There's no limits on it. There's no comfortable uh, cultural parameters that we can put on that. It's that. It, that's what it means. And second, what that means is that that's the kind of questions we need to be answering ourselves. That's how we're supposed to be speaking to ourselves when we come across people in need. We're supposed to be asking ourselves those kind of questions. If I was homeless, what would I want my neighbor to do for me? If I was a single mom, what would I want my neighbor to do for me? If I was stuck in a violent community or cycles of generational poverty, what would I want my neighbors to do for me? If I was just generally unwanted, unloved, unheard, and felt subhuman, what would I want my neighbors to do for me? And those are, man, those are uncomfortable questions, right? Because it's not... None of those are quick fix answers, and every single one of them requires sacrifice. You really got to give something up. You really got to give something up. And a lot of that is comfort, uh, time. And we know how important time is. I mean, all of our schedules are like pretty much book, you know, booked out, money. How many people have a ton of extra money every month, right? Um, it calls us. When we ask those questions, they get scary real quick. If we had time, I would take us through a litany of all these other ethical teachings that when you start thinking about it in those terms, all, these, all those crazy squeamish ethical teachings of Jesus that we start like dancing around, <laughs> like, uh, it, well, he doesn't really mean, this isn't for everyone. He doesn't really mean that. He really means this. No, he, there's this great new book that says, what if Jesus really meant, and it's like a picture book of Jesus' ethical teaching. Um, those questions, when we ask them in that way, in light of what Jesus has just taught in this parable, get real scary real quick. And it makes us or could make us want to create something to hide behind, which is exactly what the scribes and the lawyers and the Pharisees did. This is the second part, second big question. We need to ask is, why, why did no one help that guy except the Samaritan? Why did the Jew and the Levite pass by? Why did, it's not really, I mean, obviously this is a parable, right? So this aren't real people. Maybe it's something that happened. But the, what's important to realize is that there's, Jesus is telling this story to a Jewish audience of, of, of lawyers and scribes, of theology experts, of the leaders of the people, this guy and all his friends. And there's nothing in the story that, that, lets us, that, that leads us to believe that they objected or were shocked or appalled that the Levi, Levite and the priest passed by. They're kind of like, okay, that makes sense. That makes sense. Why? Why did that make sense to them? Why weren't they shocked? and appalled that that happens. And, and the answer is they had very, very good religious reasons why they shouldn't 
why those guys didn't have to stop, right? The Talmud, we already talked about a little bit. The Talmud said, sinners, they get what they get. That's the justice of God. It's God's retributive justice. Uh, outsiders, Gentiles, enemies, not our responsibility, not our circus, not our monkeys, not our circus, right? Uh, there's also was the ceremonial law, right? The Jew, the Levi, or the, the, the priest was like the pastor. He had to perform religious services. If he came in, con this guy's a minute from death. If he, if he helps him and the guy dies while he's helping him, he can't engage in his duty to the people of Israel as a, as a pastor. He can't engage in those religious services. He becomes ceremonial unclean. Same thing with the Levite. He's kind of like an Old Testament deacon, right? He has to be in there helping with the, with the worship services. If he touches this guy and he dies, he becomes ceremonial unclean. And so they're probably thinking these things, right? The guy's listening to the story. Makes perfect sense. If they touch that guy, they couldn't perform the religious services and rituals that they were called to, therefore, makes sense. But they should have known better, right? Shouldn't they have? But these are guys who had memorized the Old Testament. That's what they did. I knew a guy when I was first barely, uh, barely a Christian, a pastor at the church I was at, he got accepted to a Hebrew uh, seminary to study Old Testament. When he showed up, he was the only guy in the class who hadn't memorized the Pentateuch, right? That's what Jewish culture did, even more so in that, in that, uh, in that culture back then where they would teach audibly or teach through the spoken word. People memorize. These guys memorize all those passages that we talked about last week. Micah 6, do justice, love mercy. Uh, they memorized Amos where God said, hey, uh, if all you do is just all these religious rituals that I gave you, but you care nothing for the poor, I'm not even, I, I'm not paying any attention to what you're doing. They should have known, they should have known all that stuff, but they didn't. Why not? Why was it that their religious services and rituals took the priority over their responsibility to love the people around them with sacrificial love as a way of displaying God's goodness and mercy in the world so that people would be attracted to the God of Israel and find salvation? Why? How did they lose it? And here's where it gets scary for me. I, 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 th this was mind-blowing for me as I read this because, listen, I don't know if, you know if you're like this, but I have always thought of the Pharisees as kind of like these basically misguided dudes who are super intent on keeping the law, but their fault, their fault was they just thought they would find salvation by keeping the law perfectly. That they were basically just misguided legalists. And that was, that was their big issue, right? But that's not really what comes out and that's not what Jesus brings out. Listen to what it says. New Testament talks about, this is, talks about the high priest, the rulers, the Pharisees, the scribes, the lawyers, uh, the ruling class of Israel, the teachers, the theologians, the religious elite, right? This is what it says about them. It says, 
about the high priests and rulers, what they're really afraid of with Jesus. This is what they're really afraid of. In, in John 11, the high priests and the rulers, they, they say this. What they're really afraid of with Jesus is that he's going to cause a commotion and the Romans will then come in and take away their place, which means their exalted, privileged, wealthy, powerful place in Israelite society. That's what they're really afraid of. And then Jesus lays it out. He says to them, woe, scribe, this is Matthew 23, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Now, I always thought that meant uh, that they were like really intent on keeping the law, but they didn't care about the gospel. They didn't care about, about mercy and grace. But the hypocrisy is this. He says, you tithe mint and dill and cumin, meaning they go through all the details of their religious r ritual and responsibility, but they neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice, doing justice, mishpat, and mercy and faithfulness. Jesus says, they clean the outside of the cup and plate, they make sure all their purity laws are on, are on point, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Now that doesn't sound like people who are intent on following the law, does it? They're full of greed and self-indulgence. He says, outwardly they appear beautiful, but inwardly they are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. They look like they're super religious. They look like they're following all the details of, of law and carrying out their religious services and rituals with perfection, but inside they care nothing about mercy or justice or all these things that God calls them to. Luke 20 Jesus says they devour widows' houses. I always wondered what that meant. And the, what it means is this. In Luke 16, Jesus says, he just lays it out. Basically, the Pharisees were lovers of money. And then he says, when the Pharisees heard this thing, they ridiculed Jesus. And he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts, that their hearts are an abomination before God. Why? Because they were lovers of money. They were lovers of position, lovers of power, lovers of wealth, lovers of the privilege that they had in society. And what they thought was that if we were good enough at carrying out all of these religious services and rituals that the Torah prescribed, that is what made us right with God. I read in Josephus this week that the seven-year cycle in the Old Testament, every seven years, all debt was supposed to be forgiven, right? It was a big part of Jewish law, and it was all like a picture of redemption, right? Our debt, our sin debt is going to be forgiven. Every seven years, all their debt was forgiven. But when, at the time Jesus came, a famous rabbi named Hillel had come up with a, a workaround system 
that um, transferred the debt to the, to the temple. And so all these ruling elite Pharisees, lawyers, and scribes were able to make these loans and people were never able to get out from under them. And their debt just kept collecting over and over and over to the point where the interest and, and, and their greed and hypocrisy was draining poor people of their money. They were devouring widows' houses. And, and here's the scary theology of it. They had no idea. I don't think they had any idea. They had no idea that they were actually lovers of money, worshipers of wealth and power and privilege. What they really thought was if they could just get their worship services right, if they would just get their rituals right, if they got their theology right, if they would just correctly preach the gospel and administer the sacraments and that's what would make them right with God and Jesus saw right through them he points out like a chess master the true state of your hearts you don't love God you don't love your neighbor you don't love anybody you love yourself. Maybe you love some friends and family. But you certainly don't love your neighbor the way the law calls you to love. What's Jesus doing right there? He is what? He's applying the law. That backstage mirror for performers with all the lights that shows you every single flaw in your face. James says that, right? The law is like you walk up and see yourself in a mirror. It reminded me of this, like one of those housing, one of those house shows, you know, where the people had found this beautiful Victorian house. I love Victorian houses. A beautiful Victorian architecture. And somebody had gone in and totally, re, you know, to flip the house, had made it just beautiful. And they had an inspector come in with a, you know, with a pick and started picking underneath the molding and underneath all the, you know, the beautiful exterior of the house, the whole inside of the house was just rotted out, literally ready to fall down. And that's what Jesus is doing to those lawyers. And maybe, maybe he's doing that with us. Showing us the truth. But why does he do that? To shame us, to rub our faces in it, to, uh, no, he's like, the good, he's like the good surgeon who properly diagnoses the, the disease and then treats it, right? And he brings all of that to the surface for us to show us something even more amazing. Praise God, that's not the only point of the parable of the Good Samaritan. There's an even more important point and the important point that Jesus is trying to bring out for us is our last point is he's wanting to show us the extravagant love that Jesus has for sinners like us. And this is some of the stuff that we can miss out of the, out of the story of the, of the Good Samaritan because, uh, because of the cultural barriers, right? And also because 
the Good Samaritans become a cultural proverb for us. There's even a club called the Good Samaritan Club. And so when we think Good Samaritan, what do you think? It means do a good turn daily or something like that, right? Uh, which obviously is not, the tr- not what we just dug out of it. Um, and so we have these preconceived ideas about what the Good Samaritan is about. But when we look at this through... Uh, you know, we understand culturally what's happening and in the story we see that. What does the Samaritan do? The Samaritans were hated enemies of the Jews. They hated them. Hated the Samaritans. Racial hatred for the Samaritans, right? Uh, and so it, this picture is of the Samaritan who has this extravagant compassion for a stated known enemy of his. That's remarkable. And it, it says that, you know, when we read the story, when you read carefully, he bound up his wounds, probably using his own clothing. He probably didn't have a big old IFAC or a first aid kit with him on the trail. He probably busted out his own clothing, gave him expensive oil and wine to treat the wounds. He brought the guy, left his mission, left his journey, his, his business, whatever it was, totally inconvenienced himself and brought him to this inn so that they could care for him, uh, stayed with him overnight, the text says, and then gave the innkeeper enough money to put him up in that inn for two months. And then he promises, and I'm coming back, and if you spend any more than that, I promise I'm gonna, I'll make it good. That's crazy, right? That's extravagant. Uh, but that's the point. Now, who are we in the story? You know, we, you want to be the Samaritan, right? I know you want to be the Samaritan, but you're not the Samaritan. <laughs> the Samaritan is Jesus. We are like a combination, composite picture. Like Brian said, we are, uh, we're the priest, we're the Levite, we're the robbers, and ultimately, we're the guy who's busted up on the side of the road who's in desperate need of extravagant grace. And the New Testament teaches us that this is a picture of Jesus, right? Romans says that when we were yet enemies, when we were enemies of God, that is when Christ died for us. He showed extravagant compassion upon us when we were still his enemies. Isaiah says that our, our spirit, our spirit, our sin, our depravity, are like, they're like spiritual wounds, right? And he, he gives this metaphorical picture of our wounds being bruises and sores and raw wounds, and they are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. Just raw, festering wounds drying out and becoming infected. That's what our sins are like. And yet, later in the same book of Isaiah, what does Jesus do for us? It says that says, by his wounds, our wounds are healed. And Ephesians says that in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. That should just bring our mind right to this story. This extravagant grace that Jesus lavishes upon uh, us is the picture of the Samaritan lavishing all of this grace and mercy and compassion on 
this poor broken man is really a picture of the grace and love that Jesus has lavished upon us. And so that's really the point of the story, right? Jesus is putting the law down. He's saying, I know your hearts. I get it. You love your sin more than you love me, whatever that may be. You love your power, your position, your wealth. You're so afraid of losing it. It causes you to do crazy things. It causes you to glaze over important parts of the Bible. Uh, it causes you to like discard and jettison the things that would give you cultural credibility and, and power with the gospel in the world. You love your sin more than you love me, but you need to know that I love you more than you love your sin. And Jesus is promising and is lavishing upon us his grace, has done it in our salvation and is doing it now in our walk with him. And that is our only hope. Our only hope, our only hope for ever getting out of these, you know, getting out of these unbalanced ruts is by recognizing and knowing the love of Christ for us. Our only hope is that knowing the love of Christ and only that can change us from being lovers of religion into lovers of God and lovers of people. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, I know this hits all of us in all different kind of ways. And how it hit me this week, I have no idea, I can't guess on how, you know, for all of us, Lord, as we pray together, it's affecting and hitting each of us in specific ways. But I pray, Lord, that you would help each of us this week and over the course of the rest of the year, and even as a church together, really sit down and wrestle with this. How does this speak to us? How... How can we ask those, ask those questions well when we come across, uh, in our case, the homeless, or when we come across situations where there are people, image bearers made in your name that we have the power to help? I pray that you would help us to ask those questions wisely and think those things through so that we would be a church that loves to worship you, that loves the beauty of worship, that loves the beauty of the sacraments that you've given us and the power and the grace that you supply us with through those, but that that would show us how beautiful you are and in being as grateful as we ought to be, it would compel us to go out under the highways and pathways of the world looking for opportunities, not just begrudgingly handling things as we come across them, but being a people who look for opportunities to do good and do justice and be just and do righteousness in the world, not to blow ourselves up, not to earn our salvation, but so that we might, out of gratitude for you, put on display your beauty in the world and what kind of God you are to show your character, to show the surpassing goodness and beauty and truth of Christ to the world and to the church. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us to, to be people who are, uh, even in our current trouble, be full of joy at what we have in Jesus and full of confidence and full of security, knowing that come what may, we are taken care of 
and that in this short time that we have left, we pray that we would be people uh, who are able to focus on sharing your love and showing your character to the world, Lord. So we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for our salvation. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your spirit. We love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand uh, and sing praises to God as we meditate on that.